You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you now, as is our custom, we're going to open the Bible together and we're going to begin a new chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. For the last couple of uh, months, we've been in uh, the kind of the the turning points of the gospel of Matthew. And so we'll be in the 12th chapter today. If you don't have a Bible or a smartphone, then you'll see in the tray of the chair in front of you a paperback Bible. Don't be afraid of the table of contents. uh, And don't be afraid, even if you don't own a Bible, to take that with you. Uh, Let that be our gift to you. Uh, We want to put as uh, as many copies of God's word in people's hands as we possibly can. And so I want to uh, invite you to join us. We're going to read the first half, sort of, of the uh, the 12th chapter of Matthew, verses 1 through 21, picking up where we left off. So I say we're at a turning point because chapter 11 and 12 are when the people begin to respond fairly badly to Jesus. Uh, They begin to respond not so great. And Matthew tells us these stories so that we will have understanding and we will ourselves be humbled into thinking about how we might also rightly hear the good news of Jesus and receive it, apprehending it by faith. So Matthew's introduced us to Jesus by telling of his miraculous birth, his his powerful public ministry, and his powerful teaching even through the Sermon on the Mount. And, And after this kind of last and latest public teaching... Matthew tells us a a series of stories of people who don't really like what they see in Jesus and don't really like what they hear in Jesus. And so we're going to read about three different things. Two disputes and Jesus' response. Two disputes with Jesus and then his response. So begin reading with me on in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 1, at right after Jesus has said in verse 30 of the previous chapter that he is gentle and lowly in heart and he, in him you will find rest for your souls for I am, my yoke is easy and my burden is, and is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you has a sheep? Who has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. 
Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. For this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. My prayer this morning is that nothing natural happens for the bit of time that we have this text open, but that the Lord would speak and something supernatural would take place. That these words would become more than ink on a page, but they would become the very voice of Jesus to us. We have here two disputes and Jesus' response. Two disputes about the Sabbath. Remember what I told you, 11 and 12 are stories of Jesus in which people respond badly or at least negatively to Jesus. And the tone, that somber tone, continues here. But right on the heels of people misunderstanding him and them being invited by Jesus to experience rest in their souls are two stories about Sabbath rest. That is, maybe if you think more concretely and you find yourself saying, okay, I hear what you're saying. Jesus is a source of rest, the rest my soul desires. Then you might be saying, so what does that mean? And Matthew says, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you two stories of what it doesn't mean. And two different disputes arise. Now, these are escalating. From here on out, the the tone will change. From here on out in the entire Gospel of Matthew, people will respond differently to Jesus. They will become more and more harsh, more and more unwavering, even to the point where they turn on him completely, betray him, and crucify him publicly. But what we have here is two disputes, or two disputes of Jesus and his disciples in the first, but Jesus and how these people evidently are abiding by what these people, these Pharisees, would, be called, uh, would have called these moral laws. That is that part of the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment, I think, don't, actually don't quote me on that, uh, don't trust my memory off the top of my head, is that we are to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now that's especially important because that commandment was given to a people who had just been set free from bondage, from slavery, from generations in Egypt. And they were commanded, now just hear the grace and kindness of God, they were commanded by God to reflect his goodness and creation in which God, out of the overflow of his kindness, rested, created all things good and rested, not because he was tired, but because he's good. That's the kind of God he is. And he commanded a group of people who had never had a day off in generations to do what? Hey, rest. Just take a day and rest. Glorify God. Remember who I am and what I've done for you. And so we see the 
the height of this celebration of or, or commemoration of or observance of Sabbath comes later in the story when these people choose not to. They choose instead of resting in God's goodness and his blessing to do their own thing. And as a result, we find in the pro- the, that the prophet Jeremiah tells them that the exile, now this will sound familiar to many of you if you were here with us uh, a couple of years ago as we went through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, they were sent into exile and longing for renewal in, because of what? Because God had sent them into exile for 70 years for not observing the Sabbath. The stakes are high. Jesus evidently here is stepping into a place that means a lot for these people. But what they were coming at Jesus with wasn't necessarily the law, but more so that they had equated their what are called hedge laws with God's law. That is that not only did these people want to honor God in the Sabbath, they, they, the Pharisees here had created over time a tradition of several laws, hundreds even, that helped you to keep from breaking this commandment. That is like if, if you're supposed to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, they gave about a hundred or a couple hundred things. And here's how you can do that. And a couple of them were do not harvest. Doesn't even matter if it's harvest season, right? I know if, if If you're born on a farm, you're like, what? Don't harvest when it's time. I know, now you're getting it, right? Don't harvest. But the other one is don't prepare food. Have all your food prepared the night before so that on the Sabbath, the seventh day, what we would know as Saturday, on that seventh day, they would rest, completely rest in who God is. They would completely rest in what God had done for them. They would completely rest as an observance of how God ultimately never rests. They can rest because they're free. They can rest because God is good. They can rest because God never does. They can trust God in sleep because God never sleeps. And they had created all of these kinds of hedge laws, like extra laws to help you from breaking the big one. Smaller laws, but, but notice what they did. They had equated their little small laws that you won't find anywhere in the scripture with the big law, with God's law, with divine law. And so one of the first lessons we learn as they challenge him, like, your disciples are not doing what is lawful. They're accusing Jesus and his disciples of doing two of those, right? They were harvesting. Now, this, as you remember, as we were walking through the book of Judges and Ruth, it was common and and it was hospitality for people not to harvest the corners of their fields so that if someone were homeless, hungry, starving, they could go to the hedges of the fields and feed themselves. It wasn't stealing. And yet they equated what the disciples were doing, evidently, with harvesting. Right? That's a stretch, right? That's like they were were going and harvesting by taking some, grinding it in their hand, and eating it. So you'd have to be pretty hungry to do that. But that's what they were doing. And they were also accusing of breaking a second law, what is not lawful in their words, that they were preparing food. Now again, that's a stretch. You're hungry, walking across the edge of a field, which is not illegal, right? You can't, don't think of Western property laws. This is not stealing. This is something that was a kind and good thing to do. So they were walking through on the Sabbath. They were grinding up some of the grain and eating it. And the disciples were doing this along with Jesus, presumably. And what happened? The Pharisees thought that they had broken a divine law. Now look, I think what this gives us, this gives us an insight into the heart of humanity, that we are regularly tempted to equate our preferences and customs with divine law. 
We regularly equate our preferences and customs with divine law. We've talked about this before. We regularly get our kingdom, we get it mixed up with God's kingdom. And we often think offenses to our kingdom are offenses to a divine kingdom. And Jesus is inviting us into a paradox. They misunderstand Jesus completely. They ultimately think that Jesus and his disciples are doing what they ought not do, and they miss out on the thing that they ought to see, which is Jesus is the fulfillment of every single Old Testament story, prophecy, and promise. Why? Because they had equated their own preferences and customs with God's law. Now, I have to warn you, anytime that you see uh, stories of the Pharisees, I have to warn you, beware, it's a trap, okay? Anytime the Pharisees enter into the story, it's a trap. It's a trap that's meant to convict us of self-righteousness. And I say a trap because even when you read these stories, you find yourself doing the very thing that is being pointed out, right? And so I've, I've even done this, right? Even in preaching about Pharisees, you kind, you kind of get into this point where like, ha those Pharisees, what a bunch of self-righteous idiots. Aren't we glad we're not like them, right? So, so be, that's, that's, that's Matthew's trap, and I, I'm saying beware because he's going to do it a lot. He's going to introduce us to the Pharisees, and we'll find ourselves going like, I can't, I can't believe, I can't believe they would miss Jesus so blatantly. I just, that just makes no sense, right? So beware. Anytime Pharisees are introduced into the story, it's a trap. You're, you're, you're meant to see them and go like, man, that's awful, and you're meant to go like, oh, that's a mirror, that's a mirror. That's meant to be held up so that we would see ourselves and go, oh, that's exactly what, apart from God's grace, I would do in response to this. So beware, it's a trap, and they're equating their own customs with God's law. And friend, before you think that sounds silly, what was your last temper tantrum about? The last thing that, I mean, overwhelmed you and you freaked out. What divine law was broken, right? Maybe if on a good week, someone did in fact sin against God, and you were righteously outraged against, with God's anger, that sin. That's a good thing we're invited to experience, but that's not what we do. And so we're meant to see here a reminder that often we elevate our own preferences to that of divine law. And he's saying, ultimately here, Matthew is helping us to see that that's not what Jesus came to do. Not to just rubber stamp other people's customs. Not to just take a kingdom that these people were building and that our own self-righteousness would build, our own own sense of entitlement and accomplishment would build. He He didn't come to just simply stamp the things that you and I are building. He came to bring a whole new kingdom. A kingdom that's upside down. A kingdom in which we find rest. And so he shows us one of the ways that we don't experience rest in Jesus is right there, is when we think that our customs and traditions are divinely inspired. Now there's a few applications. Just personally, I've given you a few, like, hey, if someone cuts you off in traffic, uh, maybe what they did is illegal, but just stop for a minute and realize that your negative reaction, and I'm talking to myself here, is, is equating your own like bubble with God's kingdom, but it also means for the local church. Here's what we get to say as a church. Look, what we do as a church is our way. 
This is a way. These are convictions that we as a congregation have covenanted together to hold. But it's not the way. And we regularly, and you'll hear this in kind of religious language. If, if you weren't raised in the church, this will sound strange and you're blessed with this. But we regularly have what we call sacred cows, which is ironic because what do you do with sacred cows? You slit their throat. We elevate things that are our customs and we think they're divinely inspired. I've seen churches fight over the color of carpet, over organs, guitars, you name it, right? And just recognize before you go, oh, that's, I can't believe they would do, you, you get it? This will be our temptation. How we live and exist as a church on mission, as Connection Church, is a way. But it's not the way. It's not the way. And the minute you think, like, when we think, oh, I, isn't it going to be great? We're going to be the only people in heaven because we get it right, right? Hang on. That's a trap. That's a trap. And so we, we, with conviction, follow the scriptures, but we do so with a great deal of humility. And you know why? Because people who studied and memorized more scripture than you and I ever will, did you catch it? Got it wrong. And so also, this is the kind of humility we come to the scripture with. Knowing that Jesus is regularly going to pry from our hands things that we've elevated to primary importance. It's a trap. Beware Pharisees. The second thing we see is if the second dispute or the first dispute is about this kind of divine, I don't know, elevation of divine law from policy, the, the next thing we see is a, a dispute about being kind and, help, and helpful. Jesus makes a defense in the first section with David and then, and even with the priests. We'll come back to that in just a moment. He said, after all, David, the king, would do this. And after all, the priests would do this. And he even says kind of like tongue-in-cheek, like the priests are profaning the Sabbath, right? He's almost being sarcastic, like those lawbreakers. Until the second thing happens. He says, he went on from there. Still evidently, still evidently the Sabbath, and he goes into their synagogue. You'll see Matthew use that phrase often. Uh, we're not really sure why, but it seems to kind of hint at like Jesus and Matthew going like, that's them, and this is not what Jesus came to do. The second principle that, is that these Pharisees bring to, them, bring to Jesus a man that they're pretty sure would fit the category of people that Jesus was helping. But notice, they didn't bring this man to Jesus because they loved the man and help, wanted to help him. They brought the man to Jesus, did you hear that? In order to accuse them, we see that in verse 10. Here's a principle I would offer as well. We're regularly tempted to raise our own preferences to divine law. Secondly, our self-righteousness leads us to use people as props. And these men, instead of seeing, seeing this man with a withered hand as a, as a prime candidate for God's mercy, did what? They used him. So same kind of questions I would ask. Where are the places where you tend to objectify people? That you have lots of opinions about them, but you don't know or love any of them. Friend, that also is an invitation to experience rest. Restlessness is evident in the places where we are tempted and prone to see people as just objects rather than people created in God's image, that image his glory in a unique and powerful way. 
so they ask, as a trick, is it lawful to heal? And they offered him a person that Jesus would most likely to heal. And what happens? Jesus, knowing what is going on, makes another argument. He says, look, which one of you has a sheep? Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. That is like, which one of you, if you were a shepherd, would, would abide by one of these Right, abide by one of these hedge laws if you saw the sheep in danger. You'd be like, well, I, I can't do this because, well, you know, there's laws to abide by. And he's just doing, I think, good logical reasoning here from the smaller to the greater, but then he adds on something that we hold tightly to as Christians. So if you're not a believer and you wonder about some of the things that Christians are passionate about, we see windows into these things here. And he says, stretch out your hand. Because after all, he said, if you're going to help out a sheep, how much then, verse 12 says, more value is a man than a sheep. Now, all you pet lovers out there, it's not because God doesn't love pets. God absolutely does love animals. There's always examples, right? It said earlier he cares for, right, he carries for birds. He's already making that comparison. We see, right, we'll see the sign of Jonah uh, in, in, in next week, and, and one of the parts of the, the call to repentance for Jonah is that evidently the word of God to Jonah was repent, and there was all these people, these souls that God cared about, and even cattle, right? Like, oh, God was even caring about the cattle in, in Nineveh, right? But on the other hand, these animals are merely a picture of the beauty and the glory of God's image in humanity. And so... He says, stretch out your hand. He asks the man to do that which he could never do on his own. We don't know much about this man. It just says that they bring to him a man with a withered hand. I have to share a part of this story because I know for some of you, this is a, uh, as we get to parts of the gospel that hit close to home, this one is for me. It's going to be hard for me to tell it, but I think I need to. Uh, Some of you have asked about this, and I'll just kind of nip it in the bud. I have a big scar right here in my arm. It's kind of weird looking. when I was a, a dumb teenager, I fell through a window. It was on the ground floor, fell back. Don't ask how or why. It was really stupid. And it's any, imagine something cool, and that's what it was. It wasn't that. <laughs> and, and the piece of glass, a shard of glass, cut into my arm and severed all the tendons on this side. And I, I screamed like a soprano when I saw it. It was, so I get in the ambulance take me to the hospital, and in my head, I'm just kind of, okay, they're going to stitch me up. It's no big deal. I'm going to get back to what I was doing. And I'm laying there on, on kind of the exam table, and I'll never forget it. Uh, Dr. Stephen Cord, orthopedic surgeon, he said these words. He said, stretch out your hand. And I reached over, and I, with this hand, started to reach, like, pull, and he goes, no, 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 not with this hand. You just stretch out your hand. Now, Jesus has healed people. Jesus has healed people from all sorts of uncleanness and awful things, terminal diseases even, and he's even raised the dead. But we find here that this man is not dying, but he just has something that makes his life miserable or difficult. And, and I have to, this is where I get to enter into, that would have been me. Had I not been, like, had God not been kind enough and I had not have been like gifted to live in a century, be born in a century in a place where there are orthopedic surgeons, uh, all of the tendons severed on this side of my arm would have made this hand curl up and shrivel. And just personally, this is where I get to, I invite you to enter yourself in this. This is where this would have been me. And the plot of the self-righteous was thwarted by the mercy of Jesus. 
And so, what is his rebuke to them? He equates himself ultimately with David, and then in the first section says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's twice that he has quoted this. And then he says something powerful. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That is that Jesus came to do something profound. He came to bring true, eternal, and proper Sabbath rest. And he was going to do it by in this case, showing them the laws and rules of a new kingdom in which he is the king, in which he and his followers are nourished and fed, in which he and the people around him are healed and restored. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Side note here, we saw this last week, a little bit of, a little bit of Christology or theology about who Jesus is. If someone ever tells you Jesus never equates himself with God or says he is God because he doesn't say, I, Jesus, am God. First, that's dishonest with respect to even what happened. Uh, you don't hang people on a cross for saying things that you want to hear. Uh, you turn on and betray people for saying incendiary things. And the people who originally heard this would have known exactly what he was saying. Because after all, God was the one who created the Sabbath. God was the one who made the Sabbath for his people. And for someone to come along and do these three things, right? He equated himself with David, the greatest king. And he equated himself with the high priests. And then, did you catch that? He equated himself ultimately, I, I guess, with the Sabbath itself. And this infuriated them so that Matthew tells us, look in verse 14, the result. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Uh, the New English translation, uh, because I don't know how you think about destroy. We don't use that word, I will destroy him. The New English translation says they conspired how to assassinate him. Which is ironic if you think about it. They were mad that Jesus was working on the Sabbath, but that, I mean, that's a picture of self-righteousness, isn't it? They were, that must have taken work, right? And imagine that they justified their work, right? Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the source of true and better rest. And we will miss out on that rest if we think that our preferences are divine law or also that we use people. These are evidences that we're resting in lesser things, that we're resting in and trusting in lesser kingdoms. And Jesus confounds these people and offers an offensive word to you and to me. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, just think about that, right? Like if someone just said that about any other meaningful day, right? Like, I am the Lord of 4th of July, right? <laughs> okay. I don't know what you would expect, but it'd be something great, right? That's, that's, that's incendiary, or at least at the very least, like, go on, prove it, right? Like, but he also equates himself with David. That's like, like, that's like referencing the greatest person in these people's history, right? That's like, that's like doing something and justifying it by referencing someone on Mount Rushmore, right? Like, like, hey, why are you doing this? Well, well, we all know George Washington, but like, time out. Did you just compare yourself to George Washington? Are you like, really? Right? We see this all the time with like, uh, I, I encourage preachers with this. All the rules of preaching and expositing the texts are all broken by this one guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers. He's the greatest preacher probably since the Apostle Paul. And he doesn't do any of the things you're supposed to do. And he would write sermons last minute, like, right, like as he was walking up. And so, and so like, it'd be kind of like 
someone preaching or me saying like, well, Charles, I, I, didn't study this, I didn't study this whole week. I just made this up as I went because after all, Charles Spurgeon did it, <laughs> right? You'd be like, Are you, did, you just compare, did you just compare yourself to the greatest in history, right? You get the idea? Now, in, insert for you someone who's great, magnificent in your profession or practice, right? Someone who's a celebrity or, or an icon. And imagine someone comparing themselves to that, right? Well, you know, LeBron James, what? You're like, you can't, you just, just like, or Michael Jordan for the rest of you who just got offended. I apologize, right? But, <laughs> but like, imagine someone justifying their actions by comparing themselves to the greatest that has ever been. He does it twice. He compares them even for the high priests, Basically, I can do this because King David, after all, did it. And I do this because the high priest does it. Why? Because something greater than even the temple is here. The act of God towards his people in mercy is here. Don't miss that, he says. So these are the two disputes. The two disputes made by people who kind of used people as props and their self-righteousness caused them to ultimately not only just kind of use and abuse people, but in this case, elevate their customs to the, their, kind of their patterns and opinions to the, to the level of divine law, which are rebukes for us. But then, but then Jesus has a response. Verse 15 to the end of the passage we read, Jesus, aware of this, What's the this? Aware that they were planning to kill him. This is the first time we're introduced to this. This is the first time where the tide begins to turn, where now people are not just annoyed and they don't just misunderstand him, but they actually want to kill him, silence him. Aware of this, he withdrew from there. And many followed him. And presumably what we get, this picture here, Matthew is probably intentionally ambiguous. He healed them all. The idea is probably it's still Sabbath, and Jesus is like, oh yeah, you don't want me to do good and heal and, and restore? We'll go over here, right? And he just continues to heal them, continues to offer acts of mercy to these people. But then he ordered them not to make him known. Now this is known as the messianic secret. We're going to see it a couple more times, and we've seen it already. We see it in all of the Gospels. That is, at first, Jesus tells people, don't tell anyone about about me, which they absolutely disobey and they go and tell everyone about him. That's where the crowds come, right? But it's going to turn in, in chapter 16 when, when we realize who Jesus is proclaimed by Peter, everything turns until finally the last words recorded of Jesus here in the gospel of Matthew is what? Go and tell. We read about it just a moment ago, right? Something's going to happen. Something's going to turn in the story to where Jesus is going to say, now tell everyone. Jesus, aware of this plot, aware of what they wanted to do, healed, and then said, be quiet. Well, verse 17, you might say, why, is, why would Jesus do that? Well, Matthew zooms out and gives us a picture of the gospel. And he quotes Isaiah 42. This is the largest quote, and there are many quotes from Matthew of the Old Testament. This is the, the most lengthy. Behold, he quotes right out of Isaiah 42, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to Gentiles. That, that is the language of the nations. That's you and me. Those of us not born into the nation of Israel. Ultimately, Jesus has good news of judgment slash justice. Wrong things being made right. Our sin and the sin of others. Now, you don't have to read many news articles to have an appetite for this. 
So when Matthew zooms out and says that all the brokenness that exists in the world, Jesus is going to heal and restore. My chosen one, God says, is going to be sent into the world and the power of his spirit. This is important because this will show up in the next couple of chapters. Then it says, as, it, as if to explain why Jesus was keeping it a secret or not operating as a celebrity that you and I that might understand them to operate, promoting themselves. In verse 19, he says, he will not quarrel or qu- cry aloud nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings that justice or judgment, the justice of all things being made right, will bring it to victory. And so notice, the explanation Matthew gives us is that the same God at work in creating, restoring, freeing, fulfilling his promises to his people is at work in Jesus. And that fulfilled promise in Christ will make all things right. But it won't look like what you think it will. And so while you would expect him to go back and to quarrel, right? You, like, I mean, just, just be invited to think of how we would understand this kind of celebrity leader, right? This is where we would expect him to, like, own the, right? I don't know who your enemy is this morning, right? To own the libs, right, to own the conservatives. What does Jesus do? He's silent. He's silent. Why? Jesus didn't need to own his opponents. Jesus came to die in their place. Jesus didn't quarrel or pick another fight with these people on their own terms. Did you hear what he did? He's like, fine. You want to argue? I'm going to go about my father's business, healing, restoring, I can be silent in these false accusations. We'll see why later. It's also a fulfillment of prophecy that he was led to the slaughter like a lamb, silent before his shearers, right? This picture is meant to cause intrigue. Why didn't Jesus stay and fight? Why didn't he duke it out with his opponents? And the reason is because ultimately he didn't come to crush these people. Did you hear what he came to do? To restore them. Verse 20 says that, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. It's an analogy that may not make sense. Uh, if you play a woodwind instrument, this makes sense. A reed is simply a little piece of wood that you slobber all over and makes beautiful instrument music, right? But it cracks you, get another one. It's not the most important part. It's the disposable part of the instrument. But for the people originally listening to this, a reed would have been any sort of like utensil, any bit of like straw or any kind of like shaft of, 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 of any sort of like crops that are being grown that you could use for utensils, right? And, and, and you're meant to maybe think of like, a, I don't know, what do you do when a, when a wooden spoon or a wood, here's a, what do you do when a wooden fork breaks, which it always does, right? That little, you, that little disposable utensil, what do you, yeah, throw it, get another one, right? Did you hear what Jesus is like? He's not like that. He's not shocked when the broken people break down. He doesn't shame them or condemn them. He won't crush them. Smoldering wick, same thing. Kind of, you can kind of picture like a, a lamp that's out of fuel, right? Or a or a, a candle that's burned to its end. What do you do with it? You know, kind of, you know, quench it out, throw it away, get a new one. Do you hear? Do you hear the? Do you hear what Jesus came to do that offended these people? He doesn't crush those who were burned out. He doesn't snuff out those of us who are burned out. He welcomes us. 
He doesn't own his opponents and he doesn't crush the weary. He welcomes them and gives them rest. Here's what he's telling us ultimately, I believe, in his response to these disputes, that because of Christ, we can rest. Because of Christ, we can rest. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done, we are invited out of our weariness into rest. Out of our anxious toil, out of our need to constantly churn, out of our need to, like a, like a hamster on a wheel, never stop going. And so I want to ask you something, especially if you're in this room this morning and you're not a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a believer, or maybe you don't know, or maybe you're just curious. I have a question for you. Are you resting in Jesus? Are you resting in Jesus? That is to assume that you are probably, like we saw last week, restless. That there is something even now in you that's anxious. Right? Even, and and I, I, I lean into it. Even now, if you're like, when is this sermon going to be over? Fine. I like, lean into that. Why are you so restless? Right? Why are you so agitated? Why do we, why do we always need to get to the next thing? Why are you always looking for the next thing? Why is it never good enough? Friend, lean into that frustration. And listen to what Jesus offers. I am the Lord of rest, he says. Rest isn't just in a day. Rest is in me. But now for maybe some of you who are are contemplating what it means to follow and trust in Jesus, look at the, I want you to see kind of as we've seen the ways that unrest shows up. I want to ask a no really question. Are you resting in Jesus? And for those of you who are like, yes, I trust Jesus and rest in him. I'm going to ask a practical question that might reveal something about your soul. Does your schedule look like someone who's resting in Jesus? Does your calendar look like a person who's well-rested? Because for us, in Christ, there are signs of that rest. Did you see there were signs that these people were restless? They had come up with ways to, to make themselves feel good. Or they had the, built these other laws so they could be self-righteous. They had, they had used people as props. It, it made them feel good because they were ultimately restless. So that when the Lord of rest came, they didn't recognize him and they rejected him. Jesus came to fulfill, fulfill this promise that God would not crush us in our restlessness, but offer us the rest we really want. And Matthew reminds us of the gospel, that Jesus is the chosen and beloved servant. We saw that as baptism. He was silent before his enemies. And he wasn't even afraid to tell others to be silent. Why? Because it turns out that Jesus was doing something to grant us rest and healing. He was preparing for something that he would accomplish. And so Jesus came to not crush those who are broken by their sin and the sin of others, but to comfort and heal them, to restore them. And because of Christ, we can rest. Now, practically speaking, as a church, you, you might be a strict Sabbatarian, like do nothing on the Lord's Day. Across mostly the South, there were blue laws that were enacted to, uh, that, made, uh, that made kind of like, uh, that, made, that made it illegal in some places, where you'd be able to be fined or cited if you worked on Sunday. So just let me give you a quick rundown of the gospel here and also of kind of how we want to see. Here's a, some practical in, insight to how we incorporate the truth of Christ's rest in our lives, right? First and foremost, you have to realize uh, th- there's something kind of assumed here, right, for Christians. This is all about Sabbath, about Saturday, right? 
But what, today, what day is today? We're calling it the Lord's Day? Sunday. Well, that comes from a phrase that's in the first couple of chapters of Revelation. where the, the Apostle John says, it was on the Lord's Day that we were gathered. We know from the earliest Christians, including Justin Martyr, and they said basically uh, there was kind of this picture that like something big happened for Christians such that they stopped honoring like Sabbath and rest in the Lord on Saturday and started doing it on Sunday, Right? something fairly large happened. And that's a big deal because you know how religious folk love change, right? <laughs> but something, something turned the world upside down and the most religious, devout people all of a sudden stopped observing the rest that they have in God on the Sabbath and started resting on the first day, Sunday. And what is that thing? Christ. And even gathering today in what we call the Lord's Day is a way of committing an entire day so that people know, so that we know, because we're so prone to forget, exactly where our rest comes from. Now, that's going to look differently for everyone, but here's the thing. It ought to look like something. There ought to be some tangible evidence that you're resting in Christ. Right, so just for, just for a moment, um, don't shout them out because there's a few, but uh, does anyone, can anyone think of any businesses that are not open today? Right? It's not a secret, right? It's kind of a thing. Can you imagine, can you imagine if people thought of you the same way? Like, don't mess with that person in this period of time. They're just resting in and finding joy in Christ. They've set aside an entire block of time in their life. They've set aside an entire chunk of their life to resist the need to be self-righteous and judge and enact laws and simply rest in Jesus' fulfillment, right? So I ask again, because of Christ, we can rest. Does your schedule look like someone who is resting in Jesus? Let's play a game of truth or dare. I learned this in the fifth grade. If you find yourself thinking like, I don't know, maybe I need some help. Truth or dare? True or false? Oh, you pick one, truth or dare, right? Don't say it out loud, but in your head, pick one or two. I know you know which one you really are. So for the person who picked truth, true or false, you think you are God. You think you are so important that if you stopped working or doing what you do on one day a week, the world would fall apart without you. What if you're more brave? Dare. You ready? You ready? Let's go. I dare you. I dare you. I dare you. I triple dog dare you in the next seven days to cancel an entire 24 hours and schedule only things that stir up your delight in Jesus. I dare you. And how you respond to those things, I want to invite you to consider, might actually be a window into your soul. That might actually be a window into the state of your own soul. That you either really think you're God and you know how to do this whole thing better than he does or that you were so terrified of what you would find if you stopped. You'd come to find out you're not God. <laughs> Who doesn't rest on the Sabbath? Having a right view of Christ as the Lord of our Sabbath changes us. Whether that means you're like a hardcore Sabbatarian, 24 hours, don't touch me, don't do a thing, great. Or as we, kind of in a, a Lord's Day tradition, commit this whole day to being reminded of and to being encouraged by just what Christ has accomplished for us. So that even now, as the enemy stirs up in you, like, all right, I'm going to do better this week. I'm going to be better this week. I'm going to stop sinning this week, and I get to go rest. Rest. 
You have nothing to prove. You are not a prop in the enemy's play. You are an object of God's mercy. Stop and enjoy that. Find rest and healing in him. And then start scheduling things. Then start scheduling things. For some of you, that just means that you'll commit to, I don't know, next, next Sunday. Maybe it is. Maybe you, some, something special that makes you not think about the things that stress you out, but just you start to break in. Like, and even now, maybe it's, just, maybe it's an hour a week, right? Maybe this is your only time where you're not thinking about all the stuff you have to do. Praise God. Thanks for this hour. I'll do the best I can with it. Jesus is your rest. You don't have to earn anything. All you have to do is look to him. And so however you choose to rest physically ultimately points probably to the way that you rest spiritually. And I invite you to ask the Holy Spirit and other members of a church to help you figure that out. You are not free to do whatever. You are not free to do whatever, right? You can't take the law of God to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy any more than you can hear the, the commandment not to murder and say, like, I can do whatever I want. The Holy Spirit won't let you. He's brought you into his kingdom, and he'll help you through. But on the other hand, you're also not bound to make that a law and elevate your preference to a status of divine law. The Holy Spirit won't let you do that either. But if you're saying, I don't have time, then you're essentially saying that you're too important to rest. Side note to the families. I know if there's like, we have families in here thinking about as we commission them to love their children. I know some of you are like, man, I can't rest on one day a week. I can't do that. I have kids. You're right, sort of. This is going to be a tough season. I'll, I'll give you that. It's going to be a rough season to find rest. Um, I'll make you a deal. If, if that's one of your things, I will, I don't know, I'll cover a half a day for you. Come drop your kid off with me, and I will spend a half. I'll buy you half a day, okay? Just one person. I don't, yeah. And they'll probably come back, and that child will probably come back like they went to their grandparents, just lawless because they got to do whatever they wanted to, right? <laughs> but people will help you. If you come to people and say, my soul is restless, right? You think he would say no to this. My soul is restless. Will you help me this week? Will you come help me X day for X hours so that I can stop and find rest in Jesus? And I, prob- I-, I promise you, a non-pagan, someone who loves Jesus will go like, that's amazing. I can offer you rest like Jesus has offered me rest. And I know what you're thinking. I won't take care of your children as well as you will. You're right but we already covered that this service too. Neither of us are going to take good care of that child as God will. So how about we take that promise for a spin? Jesus is our king, our high priest. He is our Sabbath and our rest. Behold a mystery. Each of the times, I mean, every time we see Jesus do some of the stuff, like with the Gospel of John, with wine at a wedding, we're meant to stop and see the great contradiction. You can imagine the Pharisees saying to Jesus something like we would say, well, well, if I can't do these things on the Sunday, then how will I find rest, Jesus? And Jesus is like, I'm really glad you asked. Hi, my name's Jesus. And so also, as we let go of these things, we're invited to see that ultimately Jesus is the great king, the great high priest, and the healer, the messenger of God's mercy, who, man, strengthens this man's hand and invites us to do what we cannot do on our own, to rest in him. He is the redeeming promise of God fulfilled. And just think for just a moment how Jesus did it, not like you would think, How did Jesus fulfill the Sabbath for us? 
I ask you a question. What did Jesus do that last Sabbath that he was here on the earth? Stop for a moment and think. We know on the first day he was resurrected. We know on Good Friday he was killed. What was he doing? No one kept the Sabbath like Jesus did. He spent that last Sabbath dead. Dead as a doornail. He was on ice the whole day. And I want to ask you, what was happening in the midst of all that? As he was on ice, dead as a doornail, what was happening as Jesus lay there lifeless? God was bringing hope to the nations. God was bringing justice to victory. Behold a mystery, friend. One day you and I will rest. We will rest, not in sleep, but in death. You, friend, whether you like it or not, will cease any and all activity. And I ask the same question, what will be happening on that day? You see, for us as Christians, that question is profound. Because while you are lifeless, on ice, dead as a doornail, behold a mystery, you will be resting in Christ you will finally experience the presence of the Lord of the Sabbath. Behold, Jesus is the chosen one, the beloved one. And even though his lifeless body was motionless, like on ice, it brought rest to the bruised. It brought rest to the smoldering sinner. Behold the Christ. It must have seemed like things were hopeless. It must have seemed like things were hopeless as Christ was dead, lifeless, dead as a nail on ice that Saturday. But friend, Sunday is on the way. And you can rest in this life because Sunday is on the way. But friend, you can also rest in eternity because for for those of us who are in Christ, Sunday is today. Let's pray and thank God for that. Jesus, thank you that you are good and kind to us, that you are merciful to us. We confess we are restless. We are restless because of things that we have done, rebellious and against what you have planned for us. But we are also restless because of things that have been done against us, because of brokenness we see in the world. Thank you that there is not a gap in what you have come to accomplish across that spectrum. You have come to bring rest for the weary because of their sin. You have come to bring healing because of the sin of others. You have come to bring restoration and Sabbath rest for those of us who would look to you and find it. Thank you that all of these things are promises fulfilled by you. Now, for those of us, maybe that seems like a mystery too great to apprehend. Would you invite us, even now, to experience your presence? Might we turn from the things that cause restlessness, admit them, confess them, cast them all upon you, and receive the rest that you offer, that we're forgiven, that in you we're restored, in you our eternity is secure. Maybe for the rest of us, we just need to tell our schedules that. Uh, We need to tell our ways of being that. Tell our soul that. 
that we would rest in and find hope in and joy in trusting Jesus. Jesus, come now and be the Lord of our Lord's day here. Uh, not by heaping on us shame and condemnation that the law and obligations bring, but by coming with the promise that you have fulfilled all of them for us. And now all that is left for us is to receive the gift of the resurrected Christ and all the grace and rest that he brings. Allow us to receive that and respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.